Hello, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. You can listen and subscribe to the show for free on Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. For network or show information, visit FightRadio.me. And now, the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Good day, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Today, my special guest is Walter Zajac, and we'll be talking about his book, They Came Beyond Deja Vu. It's an origin story that is horrific in its intensity, a youngster at the dawning of his superpowers. When reading They Came Beyond Deja Vu, you must remember that this novel is actually the true story of renowned psychic Walter Zajac. Positioned as fiction and couched in fictitious names, it doesn't really lessen the impact and tragedy of what he endured as an abandoned, orphaned, beaten, and sexually abused child in post-war Germany and later in America. It is a miracle that he survived at all, but what is really astonishing about this story is how um, Zajac uh, awakened to his incredible gift as a psychic. With deeply realistic dreams about two young women, also suffering from their own traumas, the six-year-old Walter felt their pain. Only when he met them years later, as a 44-year-old adult, did he discover that these were actual things in their lives but he experienced them years before they were born. It took a psychotherapist who was the daughter of an accomplished Toltec shaman to explain to Walter that he wasn't crazy, he was just psychic. The King Beyond Deja, Deja Vu is a wrenching read, a supernatural thriller, and probably worthy of a good film or miniseries. Walter's Big Jack is here today to give us a preview. For nearly 20 years, Walter has been hailed as one of the best psychics on the West Coast, as an acclaimed psychic medium, certified tarot reader, NLP coach, Reiki master, and love coach. He has empowered and guided thousands through the enlightening psychic reading and inspiring coaching and healing sessions globally. His experience working in 12 different countries has given him keen insight into people's distinctions commonalities, and cultures. He continues to receive dreams and psychic visions that come true. For more information, you can visit his website, which is walterzajac.com, and that's W-A-L-T-E-R-Z-A-J-A-C.com. <laughs> so with that, uh, welcome, Walter, to the show. <laughs> Thank you. Robert, I really appreciate it. You even spelled my last name. Thank you. That was awesome. I uh, I noticed that, you know, and then it was a pretty ominous introduction, and I noticed that you wrote a book, I saw it on, on Amazon, called Joy Potential, and in its description, the first thing you say is, in a state of chaos, anything is possible. And that's really how my book came about, the state of chaos, and 
you write, we have an opportunity to shake up our lives and create more happiness. Our time here is limited. Where do you put your attention? I, I really like that, and I really appreciate that you have this show bringing inspiration to Earth. It's a great name. Well, thank you. Thank you for quoting our book. I appreciate it. But, you know, from that time on, you know, for me, it's just been um, one of, I mean, it's just been a constant reminder. You know, of, yeah. You know, every day, so. Yeah. And then your, your subtitle, Where You'd Least Expect It, right? That's what my book really is all about in the sense of, you know, we all have really, uh, most of us, I think, if not all of us, have experienced chaos in our lives, if not a lot of chaos. And, yeah, that that is the place where, where joy does come through somehow, some way. We find joy and we find ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. you know, your they came, beyond Deja Vu, um, yeah. as I mentioned in the introduction, childhood, imaginary. So, tell us, um, uh, first of all, the, the book is a novel, um, but it's couched in your true, true experience. Um, now, I yeah. had a show with a gentleman oh, yeah, several years ago, and he had simil- a similar uh, structure, but he called his faction. <laughs> so it was factual, <laughs> a bit of fiction with it. So, um, but anyway, so tell us kind of about how you, how this book came about in, in its form. I wrote it as a novel in order to protect the privacy of people involved. Um, but every scene in the book happened to me. I changed names of people. I changed places and, in some cases, the nature of relationships. But every scene happened to me. And, you know, my my purpose, I touched on this just a couple of moments ago, my purpose in writing this book was really to... Uh, first of all, to, to recognize that so many of us have gone through, like I said, chaos, and that includes abandonment, whether it's physical abandonment or emotional abandonment. It's just rampant in our society, on our planet, and physical abuse, sexual abuse, way too common. Um, and uh, one of the things I wanted to put out there was just to let people know that you're not alone that there are others out there who have experienced chaos, as you put it, and overcome it. And my book includes tools of how to overcome it. And then the other thing that, that really stood out to me is, and this has stood out in my work, but also just in my observation of life, and that is most of us, if not all of us, have some kind of psychic awareness, whether it's deja vu experiences, which for most of us means uh, believing that we've been here before, dreams coming true, or ESP, when you know that somebody's going to call and you know how they're doing, Um, and then also that it is vital that we, all of us, learn to love ourselves. That's the foundation for everything. If you don't love yourself, you can't really allow yourself to be loved by many, anybody else because you don't believe you're worthy of it. And then you don't get the good stuff in life because, again, if you don't love yourself, you don't believe you deserve it. So, you know, and yeah, out of, out of chaos comes joy. Finding yourself, finding self-love finding ways to uh, overcome abandonment and abuse, that's powerful. And 
Uh, you know, I think you probably did it in, when you wrote your book. You make yourself vulnerable when you write about your own experiences, and that, that's, that's hard. And yet, without being vulnerable, you can't inspire anybody else. Yeah, because, you know, the, the truth is that um, people will recognize um, when you, you, you're not all in. <laughs> you know, when I first started my friend look at it, and, and I was trying to do it, you know, keeping myself at uh, an appropriate distance <laughs> from the character. Um, but, but, so, well, she said, it's like, you know, listen, you know, you gotta put some emotion into this, you know, cause it's just, you know, uh-huh. falling flat. And, and, and so that was when I got to the point of, you know, you know, those vulnerable aspects, um, you know, negativity and cycles and all that kind of stuff. Um, I, you know, it was like, okay, yeah. Put it in there that people will need it to be able to relate better. I think so. Yeah. That's probably what why you did that as well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's a very emotional book. Very powerful. People say when they read it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, yeah. yeah you know, the the uh, the idea. First of all, you know, you both that three part kind of message that you are giving through your book. Um, that first one yeah. about um, overcome abuse and abandonment, um, you know, in today's world, we see so many cases where abandonment um, feelings are going to be created for a lifetime, you know, but yeah. they, but they should, <laughs> you know, so um, I think that's just really important in today's world. Oh, it is. And in, in, in my work, I find that people having been abandoned emotionally in their childhoods is, is really common. And that comes when um, perhaps uh, daddy never lived with mommy, daddy never played a part in the child's life, or um, daddy left when the child was five years old or eight years old and uh, then severed their emotional relationship with the child, or that daddy was literally abusive. You know, there's just all kinds of scenarios where people become emotionally abandoned, where nobody is there for them, even though they're being fed and they have a, a room to sleep in. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's part of that, that physical uh, nurturing is just a part of the picture, and, and the other yeah. can... Now, you know, I will start when you were six years old and excited yeah. about a train ride. <laughs> so, tell us yeah. about, I mean, eight, six. You know, and I'm sorry, before you start, you know, it just reminds me when I looked, at, you know, when you had that news about that Ukrainian boy going 700 miles on the train, you know, not yeah. knowing what was at the end yeah. of it. But yours yeah. was a little bit more <laughs> Yeah, well, and I wasn't all by myself, but let me just set the scene here, and I noticed in, in looking over your shows that you had um, a lady on about a month ago who talked about post-war Germany after World War II, and I don't, I didn't notice that she really went into detail, but um, my book starts 11 years after World War II ended. I was six, and uh, every city in Germany uh, the last couple of, year, of years of the war, 
uh, 36 cities, according to Exeter University in the UK, were anywhere from 80 to 95% leveled by American and, and British bombers. Um, and the reason was the Nazis were hiding tank factories, munitions factories, and you name it, in amongst the population. And the Americans and British really had no other choice than to do what they called carpet bombing, which is just strip after strip of bombs in a row where everything underneath gets destroyed. My, the cities, sorry, the population of my city went from 236,000 down to 50,000 at the end of the war, which was six years, 1939 to 1945. And even 11 years after the war had ended, because there had been so much destruction, half my city was still bombed out shells of buildings and piles of rubble. And that was a common scene. And the, the reason I'm mentioning this is that clearly Germany was a very poor country at the time. And it was full of widows, full of orphans, full of misery. I didn't ride in a car until I was seven years old. And... um I was told I was going on a train ride, and a Red Cross lady took me, and I was really excited. I had a older half-brother, half-sister, 10 years and 6 years older than me, and they always got to do all kinds of wonderful stuff I never got to do. So I was totally excited about a train ride, and I went with a Red Cross lady, and after a couple hours on the train and a, about a 30-minute walk through the countryside, I arrived at a place called Orphanage, which was a word I'd never heard before. And I was told I would never be going home again. And, um, yeah. And after a year in that orphanage, I was adopted by an abusive American Air Force couple. And so life actually went from bad to worse. Uh, within weeks after moving into their apartment, I was being beaten so badly that my bare bottom would bleed. Um, and, um, yeah, you know, and so then that's setting the tone of what happened, but the, the book is, of course, partially about that, just describing what happened and, and just setting the, the, the scene. But, uh, even before the orphanage, I had two imaginary friends with whom I interacted constantly, like almost 24-7, and about whom I saw vivid details regularly over and over and over about, uh, for each of them, a very traumatic experience that they had gone through. And um, the, they were, as far as I could tell, imaginary. That was my awareness at the time. And uh, they became my companions in the orphanage, became even more important to me than they were before the orphanage because I didn't have anybody else. And then no. the fascinating thing is, first of all, that I had imaginary friends with whom I interacted so vividly <laughs> and in such detail. But then when I was 44 years old, I met both of these women in real life. When they were my imaginary friends, they were teenage girls. And when I met them in real life, they were both in their early 20s. And I was able to tell them each several things that they had never told another person about their experience. Mm. Yeah, that, and that's that, that the essence of the book. <laughs> <laughs> that is the essence. Yeah, just uh, 
Wow. Um, let, let's start with, you know, the friends, you know, when the imaginary friends started coming to you, um, was that during a particular period of trauma? Or I guess, you know, this was me. It sounds like it was all trauma. Yeah. But I mean, you know, was it particularly strong when, like, was there any particular um, any way that they stimulate you, know, that, that you knew that they were coming, or your connection, or was it just, like, totally random, or after you experienced some yeah. trauma, showed up? Um, how did how yeah. that work for you? Um, my, my life at the time was full of drama because uh, my biological father was not married to my mother. We all lived together, but he was a severe alcoholic, and he would come home completely drunk almost every night and beat the crap out of her. And mm. so there was a tremendous amount of drama and, and violence. Um, war-torn Germany, I used to see men without arms, without legs, um, severely scarred faces, and, of course, very, very angry. Um, and Germany at the time, I don't know what the law is now, but at the time it, it was okay to bring your child into a bar. And mm. so I would mm. hang in bars with with my father while he got rip-roaring drunk, and <clears throat> I would see bar fights. And, of course, um, the people without limbs, one of my the father's friends had no legs, got around on a cart, four-wheel cart, low to the ground, uh, like uh, Eddie Murphy in Trading Places, but he actually had legs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and, you know, and it was that kind of an environment where just things were just unreal and unstable, and, yes, I believe it, believe I needed extra security, and... um then, you know, another thing that maybe you have also noticed in your own world, when we have psychic experiences, any of us, we're not aware. It's a psychic experience. Nobody's making an announcement. You're having a psychic, a psychic experience now, right? It's just there. And, and it would, wouldn't it? <laughs> but for any of us, it's just normal. Just normal. We're not aware this is a psychic experience. It's just what we know. And in my case, I was not aware that um, these imaginary friends, I found out many years later, they were actually, I was experiencing them in the psychic world. And I was experiencing them and their traumatic event 15 years before they were born. Yeah. So to answer your question, you know, no, it wasn't one particular event. It was pretty much just the the, the nature of, of life at the time. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I can understand that. Now, when you experienced the therapeutic event, um, how how did you how did you react? That. I mean, it's like you got enough trauma of your own. You know, here he we're yeah. adding on, you know, um, an imaginary friend's trauma. So, how, yeah. how did you, uh, yeah, what, what, does, what was that like? I'll uh, tell you about uh, the first one uh, in, in the book. Her name is Maria. And uh, I 
in this psychic experience, I, well, first of all, I went to a movie with my older brother, and could have been my very first movie, I'm not sure, but I saw this movie that just completely moved me to the core of my being, really touched my heart. And the movie centered around a teenage girl who was just amazingly sweet and kind and loving, and I felt really close to her. You know how when you're watching a movie, you identify with the characters, sometimes even really feel close, feel love. And I definitely felt love for this girl. And then during the course of the movie, she gets into a large semi-truck hauling freight with her father, and they end up in a horrific accident. Her uh, face gets distorted and otherwise injured, and um, I see the accident itself. I see her floating above her body in the truck cab. I see her being helicoptered to a hospital. I see her floating above her body in surgery. I see her going on a near-death experience. It's something that Dr. Raymond Moody, uh, one of the uh, premier near-death experience researchers, calls a shared near-death experience where you go on somebody else's near-death experience and experience it in detail. And then I saw her being revived um, with defibrillators, and then I saw her the day that the bandages came off. I saw all of that detail in the movie. But then when I tried to ask my brother about pieces of the movie that had upset me and, and or touched me, he said, we didn't see that movie. That's not the movie we saw. We saw a completely different movie. And I later, and of course this didn't make sense, and my brother had a tendency to not be very nice, so I thought he was just messing with me. And uh, mm-hmm. But then I figured out years later that what had happened was I fell asleep during the movie, and I had a vision. And then I had that vision over and over and over and over. And your question was, what did I feel? Well, I felt a real beautiful love connection to this girl. And then I was horrified, horrified seeing what she went through. But then when I went on the near-death experience with her and went to the other side beyond the light, I... I was just amazed. I experienced stuff that is beyond words beautiful, um, which is what you read when you when you read about other people's near-death experiences. And uh, then I felt her anger when the, the day that the bandages were, were taken off. And um, for me, it was just deeply moving because I felt such depth of feeling for her, and then, of course, once I was sent to the orphanage, I felt her trauma and her loneliness, because when we're in an experience like that, any of us, we're completely alone. We're experiencing it alone, her accident, and my being arriving at the orphanage. And so we really identified with each other on the sense of, I get it, I understand that you're all by yourself, you're lonely, and and life has just become insanely scary. And so we connected on that level. And then, uh, like I said, she, she became a constant, constant companion where, um, maybe you've experienced this where you're in a somewhat of a semi-hypnotic state, semi-dream state where you're awake and yet you're experiencing other stuff. 
I would literally interact with her on a regular basis just that way where I felt companionship, companionship, I felt love. Wow. Wow. Um, we're going to be taking a few minutes, but um, with with that, now you went through that experience, and then you actually met these two women later in life. Um, when you were yeah. Four. So tell us about that that moment when you two met. How, how did it <laughs> have yeah. interesting and interesting conversations? Yeah. Um, Maria, the accident girl. Um, I, just to set the stage here, I, um, had also had a 28 year career in music where I was relatively successful, played in situations uh, in front of, uh, thousands of people, backing up recording artists, and I was in a, uh, a band that had a number 18 billboard chart hit in Europe and so I was and I had buried myself in music that's where I found my comfort and my connection to spirit because life had been so difficult in the physical world so and music was a spiritual place for me to go but then uh, eventually the arts of any kind it's really difficult to make a living at it and so eventually I ended up in a day job and, of course, in the day job, once you've experienced 28 years of playing for hundreds <laughs> of thousands of people, day job is pretty disappointing. And I was definitely unhappy. And, and I would say easily miserable. And this one, in, in the day job, uh, one of my functions was to call people with prices. Um, and... Uh, prices that I had worked up in one one of the places that I called, I had been calling for about three years, and the receptionist had just this magical, beautiful voice, but all she ever said was, one moment, please, I'll connect you, right? <laughs> and every time she said that, oh, my heart melted, but I never talked to her, and one day... I did something that she that was unexpected, but I made her laugh, and I made her laugh so hard she couldn't control herself. And when we laugh together, we connect spiritually. And in that moment of laughter, we seem to recognize each other. You know, sometimes you meet somebody where you feel like, oh, my God, haven't I known you all my life? Didn't we grow up together? You just know each other. You know things about them, and we had that going on. And so we started talking personally because, wow, this is magical. And I didn't recognize her as being an imaginary friend. But then after a few weeks, she said, and this was a phone relationship. I did see her once in person, but primarily phone relationship. And after a few weeks, she said, I have a confession to make. I was in a really bad accident, and my face got really disfigured. I've had 17 operations, and, and I'm sort of scarred up. And she started telling me the story of her accident, and I finished the story for her. Finished the story, which just totally amazed both of us. And then, over the course of the next couple of weeks after that, I told her five things that she had never told anybody, ever. And it was beautiful at first, and yet I, she felt it, and I felt it too, and that is, how, how is this possible? It's just incredibly emotional, and because I had lost my power the day I arrived at the orphanage, I had had a tendency 
if not outright just did it, saw myself from a perspective of a victim. And so at that mm-hmm. point, I felt like so she was messing with me. The universe was mess, was mess, messing with me. How is this possible? That's crazy. And then she also got to a place relatively quickly where this is unacceptable. She began to feel violated by my knowledge of her and thinking, you know, guys, what is this, this guy? How does this guy know this stuff? Is he a creep? Is he trying to mess with me? Is he manipulating me? What's going on? Is he crazy? And then she completely severed the relationship and then also mentioned that, dude, you might be crazy. This is just way too messed up. I can't do this. And for me, that was almost as devastating as the day I arrived at the orphanage because this was my connection to me, to my little self, and somebody that I had loved all my life and interacted with all my life, and then she was gone. And here's the beautiful thing, and that is, yeah, me too. I thought, maybe maybe I am crazy. (laughs) People had been, good friends had been telling me for years, dude, you need some help. <laughs> you need some help. Just think about what you went through. Mm-hmm. Of course, you need some help. And I, I was in denial. But the cool thing was yeah. that I also thought maybe I am, and so I sought out a psychologist, and that was the best thing I ever did for myself because that's when I started the path of finding myself, finding out what happened, finding self-love, really learning to love little Walter, especially little Walter who got sent to an orphanage, and be realizing that I'm psychic. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> surprise, surprise. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, yeah. We're, we're about halfway through the show, Walter. I want to take um, okay. a quick uh, 90 break. Um, and then we we'll come back and let's, let's go ahead and follow that path and, and uh, that okay. realization of being psychic and everything that, uh, that I've got. Cool. Okay, so everyone stay tuned. We'll be right back after this very brief break. Thanks, Robert. Hello, this is Robert Sharp. I want to thank you for joining us, and I hope that you are enjoying today's show. Just a reminder that we have a wealth of information and resources available on our website, byteradio.me. There is a calendar of upcoming shows, along with an archive link that will give you access to more than 1,600 shows that we have had during the past 12 years. Also on the site is a link to the products and services we provide, books, nature photography, calendars, and 5x7 photo greeting cards. Our show is a free podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and TuneIn. And you can subscribe for free on any of those platforms by using the links on our website homepage. We are on social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, etc. And we also have buttons to those platforms on the top of our homepage. Our website, byteradio.me, has much for you to explore and enjoy. I also very much appreciate you supporting our guests, and especially today's guest. And now, back to the show. Okay, everyone. Thank you for staying with us again today. My special guest is Walter Zajac, and we're talking about his life experience as well as the book he wrote, They Came Beyond Deja Vu. And again, you can find out more about Walter and all that he has to offer 
by visiting his website, which is www.walterzajac.com, and that's walterzajac.com. Okay, with that, we're back, Walter. Yeah. Yeah, great. So, we left with you discovering <laughs> your thinking. <laughs> yeah. So, tell us. Tell us about that time. You know, what were your beliefs in the supernatural or extra natural? Um, and how how did you handle that, that knowledge? Mm-hmm. Thank you. I had been aware of dreams coming true. But, okay. uh, you know, which then is psychic awareness, I guess. But I didn't see it. You know, I touched on it earlier. Um, people who have had psychic experiences, and I think that really is most of us, when they're happening, we don't realize they're psychic experiences. They just seem normal because we don't have any other normal to compare it to. It's our life. It's what we experienced. And so I had, you know, some some awareness, but I definitely didn't see myself as psychic. And the 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 aspect of People telling me, dude, you need some help. And this girl telling me, yeah, you're crazy. That really made me question my own sanity. And the beautiful thing is I ended up finding a psychologist who is the daughter of a Toltec shaman. And many in the audience may know Toltec shaman is uh, uh, what, uh, in the teachings of Don Juan, a book by Carlos Castaneda, it's a series of books, uh, Don Juan Matus. Is, uh, is the one who the books are about. He was a Toltec shaman, and Carlos Castaneda actually became a Toltec shaman apprentice and then became a Toltec shaman. And then uh, The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. He's a Toltec shaman. It's a shamanic tradition that goes back many thousands of years, maybe as much as 10,000 years in Central and South America, and it has just powerful ancient wisdom. And um, Anybody who knows anything about sh- shamans, I don't know what the plural of that word is, <laughs> um, knows that they go to other realities, they go to other worlds, and even quantum physics these days says that other universes exist within this universe. And so she had experienced things with her Toltec shaman father that were just insane going to other realities, going to other worlds. And when I told her my story, thinking that I was crazy, she said, ah, that's nothing compared to what I've seen. You're not crazy. You're psychic. You're psychic. And that was the first person who had actually ever told me, and clearly she was qualified to make that assessment that, yeah, you're psychic. And then she relatively quickly came up with, the 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 realization which just made complete sense to me that well the evidence of me being psychic is that I found these two imaginary friends in the psychic world 15 years before they were born and uh, used them so to speak uh, allowed them to be my friends in order to have the companionship that I didn't have otherwise and in order to survive. And, better yet, I chose two women who I would actually end up meeting later in physical life, and the meeting of these girls would cause me to finally seek my healing. Uh, 
finally seek understanding and finally find me, find myself love, and find my power, which had eluded me most of most of my life. And then that's a common thing. Most people don't feel like they really have their power. And for me, it's not power over somebody else. It's power over my choices. Yeah, yeah. Empowerment's yeah. a real big thing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, with, with the that particular, you know, that new awareness that you have, um, yeah. what did uh, and how did you? I mean, I know I noticed that you're, you know, also um, you use an NLP and you yeah. have the tarot and the Reiki. So kind of how, how did yeah. you, you know, once you got that, that awareness of, you know, who you are, you know, factors of who you yeah. are, um, how, how did you go about developing the tools that you have today? Yeah, thank you. Good question. Um, first, much of it came naturally because I, I, I lived in the psychic world without knowing that that's, that was the psychic world. It was just normal for me. And then um, about a year after, uh, no, it was just before I started my therapy, I read a book called The Holographic Universe, which is, and I recommend it to everybody, um, it's a new theory of existence that's been around about 50 years that uh, says that the universe and everything in it is constructed like a hologram. And briefly, a hologram is um, created by a... uh, Well, first of all, everything in the universe, according to quantum physics, in its essence is a frequency, just a wave. And a hologram is created by uh, when you... different frequencies come together in a given space. They all integrate and combine to create one new wave interference pattern, which distributes itself equally throughout the space that they meet, one new pattern. And as a result, you can take any one small portion of that hologram, and that small portion contains all the information of of the whole hologram. Again, because all the frequencies combine to make a massive wave interference pattern. While quantum physics says that the universe is, everything is in its essence frequencies. And so the universe itself is one massive wave interference pattern which distributes itself equally throughout the area where these frequencies meet, which is the universe. And so as a result, any one given spot in the universe contains all the information of the whole. And for me, that's what allowed me to realize that I can be psychic because, you know, my approach before was, you know, there's a lot of people out there, I call them woo-woo-foo-foo, you know, where they're talking about all kinds of stuff that doesn't really relate to practical life, stuff from the spiritual world, archangels, and, you know, it's almost like there's a corporate structure on the other side, and... and um <laughs> I I don't buy into that. You know, to me, we're here, living here now, and anything that I get or try to help somebody with has to apply to life here. And so for me, seeing scientific evidence of of the fact that, that this makes psychic information real, in other words, 
this theory of existence, the holographic theory, is the only one ever postulated that leaves nothing too supernatural. Nothing has to be described as supernatural. There's an explanation for everything. And for me, it's also a clear explanation of why, you know, I have clients literally all over the world, why I can have talk to somebody in Japan and tune into their boyfriend, let's say, because it's a long-distance relationship in Australia, and get accurate information about the boyfriend's personality, that what uh, the, what ha has happened to the boyfriend in the past, and how the boyfriend feels about her and what the future holds. All of that information is out there in the hologram. It's all available. And to me, that's a scientific explanation for what I do. And it's evidence of the fact that what I do is real. I'm not just making stuff up. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, the, I to enjoy the uh, scientific framing um, or under, you know, frame of reference to understand yeah. those kinds of experiences. And, you know, it also allows for the timeless nature of what we see, like for you seeing these, you know, these individuals before they were born. Uh, I mean, you know, yeah. linear fashion, that, that ain't going to happen, <laughs> you know. So, um, <laughs> yeah. but it does allow for in that holographic universe perspective. Yeah. 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 And it, like I said, that theory has been around about 50 years, and more and more physicists and scientists are subscribing to it, primarily because nothing is left to the supernatural. Everything can be explained. Yeah. And, 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 and I see the uh, increased frequency of what would have been considered psychic experiences, but, I mean, I, the, the increase yeah. is so dramatic that if a scientist is a true scientist, uh, they won't ignore, you know, some um, empirical evidence that they see around them, you know, instead jump into the science mode and say, okay, let me explain what it is that's happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now your bio um, indicates that you believe that we're all here on Earth to overcome challenges um, to experience consciousness in order to understand our true spiritual essence that we're here to love and be happy and to have fun. So, yeah. um, how, how, so I mean, obviously you've, you've overcome those challenges, a lot of the challenges, you yeah. know, and, yeah. and, and that, in fact, we know. So, how, how is it that, you know, first of all, is is our my question about challenges? Do do we yeah. have to <laughs> challenge them in order to get uh -huh. that insight, or easily <laughs> 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 yeah. So here's um, here's my understanding <laughs> of it, and and this comes from. Uh, well, first of all, one of the things that I do is I'm a psychic medium. I, I tune into entities that have died, uh, people's loved ones, uh, and I connect Uncle Bob who has died, for example, with Susan who's still alive. And when I do that, I ask Uncle Bob for three things that connect 
two of them, things that were her favorites or his favorites or these favorites or moments when they just really connected. And until I prove to Susan that it really is Uncle Bob, I don't go on. And if I can't prove that it's Uncle Bob, I give them their money back. So the point is, when I connect to people on the other side, I have, first of all, proven that I'm really talking to that person. So any information that I get is real. Otherwise, it's just stuff that I could be making up if I don't prove that it's really Uncle Bob. So the point is, consistently, when in when I connect to people on the other side and in all the books about near-death experience research that I have read, consistently, the people on the other side, the entities on the other side, as the main part of their message, say that I didn't love enough, I didn't love you enough, I didn't show you enough, I didn't say it enough, I didn't spend enough time loving you, and I didn't have enough fun. And once we're dead, we can't make up for any of that stuff. They try. They try to communicate still, souls on the other side. But nobody's listening. Most of us, if not all of us, we don't really want to see a spirit in the room. We don't want to hear voices. And so we shut that stuff out. And so the people on the other side are literally prevented from communicating this really important message, which is love, 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 fun, 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 fun. And if you don't know it, do it now. You won't. You won't get to. And it's one of, one of the things you said in your description of your book, Life is Short. And so... Yeah. Um, in reading about near-death experiences, one of my favorite authors is a guy named Daniel Brinkley, who died and went came back to life three different times. He spent a total of two hours on the other side, and, and beginning with the second time that he died and came back, he realized where he was and what was happening, and so he paid, paid attention. And challenges is one of the things that he talks about and it's consistent in in the other uh, near-death experience researchers uh and that is when we overcome a challenge we are the happiest we ever will be we feel strong we feel really good about life we love ourselves and we love everybody when we overcome a challenge but then literally whether it's subconscious or conscious we get bored, and we choose another challenge to to overcome. And when we overcome that challenge, we're really happy. We love ourselves. We're feeling strong and just completely fulfilled, and we love everybody. And then we get bored. And um, that seems to be the nature of life. And here's the beautiful part. Every time we overcome a challenge, yes, we uplift ourselves, but we also literally uplift the entirety of creation. We are on the leading edge of knowledge. We are on the leading edge of experience, and every time we overcome a challenge, we contribute to the mass intelligence, to the mass understanding of life itself, uh, the mass understanding of what it is to exist. That is a challenge. And then the other part is fun, fun. You know, it's one of the things that really stood out in my therapy, and that is we all want to be happy. I've never met anybody that doesn't want to be happy, but most of us are putting happiness off to, well, once I graduate from high school, once I graduate from college, once I meet that person, once I get that really cool job, 
then I'll be happy. So we're postponing it all the time. And what I realized through my therapy and through helping people for 20 years is, dude, now is all we have. <laughs> now. Yeah. Now. That's it. Now. You cannot be happy for 2.31 p.m. tomorrow afternoon. It's not possible. You cannot make a choice for 2.31 p.m. tomorrow afternoon. The only time you have choices or power is now, when 2.31 p.m. tomorrow afternoon is now. And it's always now. It's magical. It's always now. And that is when we have all power. And if you're going to be happy and you're not having fun now, how can you be happy? The only way to be happy is to have fun now. And now is all we ever have. So what I learned was no matter what it is that I'm doing, make it fun. Make it fun. If it's the dishes, if it's vacuuming, even cleaning the toilet, figure out some way to make it fun. And the best, most effective way to make stuff fun is gratitude, being grateful for something about this experience, grateful for something about the person that's giving you a hard time that opens your heart and allows you to see things from a different perspective and you end up having fun. Yeah, that's important. You know, sometimes, I mean, with what the world has gone through in the last couple of years, the idea of having fun is is just, um, you know, it was just totally, I mean, we saw glimmers of it and, 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 and we saw examples of it. And I think that that was, those were very important to help raise awareness in a lot of folks who maybe wouldn't otherwise kind of pay attention. Um, but, um, yeah, fun seems to take a back seat. <laughs> it should be kind of riding right beside you, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things you mentioned when you were talking about uh, the – when you communicate, you get um, examples of evidence that you're communicating with who, um, you know, yeah. you're communicating with the correct person. Um, one, of, one of my pet, you know, and you mentioned about having to do with the hair now. One of my, you know, over the 12 years I've done this and 20-odd years, um, one of the things that got me was the, gets me the channeled, you know, like you talked about the archangels, you know, yeah. have this message. And, and you know, my, my thought was, this, has always been, you know, how does that help me here now? <laughs> you know, <laughs> exactly yeah. how tell me specifically, you know, because I, you know, my, I've been told that, you know, my, my, uh, guardian angel talked to me a lot, a lot of times and a lot of times I'm not listening. <laughs> you know, that it's, I have a hearing problem, um, but um, but it's, it's one of those where that it's it, to me it seems that if we're going to be getting guidance for this earthly experience, would be that that we get the guidance specific to this you know, this hologram, you know, this this evidence that we're living, um, because beyond that, to me, it, it doesn't. I, mean, I think it's that kind of vague, you know, wilderness, for lack of a better word, that, that kind of puts a damper on some people who may be interested or curious, but aren't going to go that extra distance to, to explore or find out because of some of that extreme, generalized stuff you know, that, that gets pumped out. Yeah. Um. So, 
Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. All right. Go ahead. So with with yeah. So with with uh, the counseling that you give individuals, um, yeah. you know, and you make particular connections, do you um, do the, the people that come through to you provide information for your clients that they can apply, or, or do oh, you get an occasional? Hierarchy woo woo. Do they pop in too? No, it's um, no. Uh, <laughs> the, the, I don't get archangels popping in, and it's maybe because I'm I I don't look for that. I'm not necessarily open to it, and because I also feel what you just mentioned, and that is, if it's not practical advice, it doesn't help somebody. Um, Saying prayers to the to the god uh, Ganesh or the archangel so and so, it doesn't apply to to life. And so the information that does come through is something along the lines of, uh, tell your sister that I was really hard on her and I didn't mean to be that hard on her. And she's a beautiful soul and she has every reason to love herself. Things like that. And things that come through, you know, my goodness, just really super traumatic. I uh, channeled a man who died who had been raping his daughter since she was three years old. And he was begging for forgiveness. And all of that came through, you know. And, of course, they cry, I cry. It's incredibly traumatic. And, And yet... It brings healing. It brings love. And just the acknowledgement of him begging for forgiveness is powerful. Yeah, yeah, it is. You know, I think there's, um, I mean, I know I've had experience in my life where um, someone who's uh, passed on, but with a lot of unresolved, you know, um, things, you know, she kind of carried with her. Um, but, you know, to me, it's one of those, um, the idea of, you know, that the connections that we make are, are the impressions are forever. I mean, you know, we, you know, what we have experienced is what we experienced, you know, and, yeah. and that only become, only become, um, either, uh, contributory, you know, kind of once you get that forgiveness aspect, you know, resolved, you know, that uh, that's one aspect and the other that it, it can be, if not resolved, it can be an ongoing entanglement, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, then so, isn't that life? So, <laughs> ongoing entanglement. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> So, well, gosh, we're, we're down to the last five minutes here, uh, Walter. So, um, is there what, any final words or any any kind of message you want to give the listeners, you know, either um, about the book, um, about your experience, or just about how to get more fun in life? Yeah. Gratitude. 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 Gratitude is the antidote to emotional pain. Gratitude is the antidote to fear. It's pretty much the antidote to, antidote to everything, like I mentioned earlier. If you can be grateful, 
You know, let's say you're having a confrontation with a person. If you can find one or two things to be grateful for about that person, things that they have brought into your life or just things that you admire about them, your heart opens up and the other person notices it and both of you generally end up opening your hearts more than there is love in the situation and whenever there is love or understanding or kindness, it's fun. It's fun, but yeah. gratitude is the key. <laughs> finding stuff to be thankful for, stuff, finding reasons to appreciate what's happening, that makes this moment fun. And then as far as yeah, the book goes, <laughs> the book is They Came Beyond Deja Vu. It's available as a paperback, as Kindle, or an audio book that I narrated, and that you can find it on Amazon.com. Also on WaltersAjack.com or PsychicWalter.com. Great. Yeah, you have a wonderful voice for narration. So I'm not sure that was <laughs> going to be a quite a, a yeah. <laughs> you do. Well, I really want to thank you for your time today, Walter. It's been a joy. Uh, now we're connected on Facebook. And so for listeners out there, if you use uh, Facebook platforms, feel free to join Walter and me there. Um, and I look forward to following your journey. And again, thank you for your, I am grateful for your time today. And I'm in I'm grateful for you. Thank you, Robert. <laughs> you're, very, you're very welcome. Again, everyone, today my special guest has been Walter Zaytak. We've been talking about his book, They Came Beyond Deja Vu. And as Walter mentioned, you can find out more about that by visiting his website, www.walterzajac.com and that's Walter Z-A-J-A-C.com And everyone, I want to thank you for joining us for this edition of Bringing Inspiration to Earth Show and until we meet again Thank you for tuning in You've been listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth Show Remember, our show is available as a free podcast from Spotify, iHeartRadio Tune in Apple Podcasts, Blog Talk Radio, Amazon Music, and Audible. To follow our show on any of those platforms, visit ByteRadio.me and select the one you use most. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ByteRadioMe. Until we meet again, remember to be a bright light by bringing inspiration to your world and to the lives of those you touch.